Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome my good friend, Eric Fanning, the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association to the program. He served as the 22nd Secretary of the United States Army, as well as top jobs in the United States Air Force, Navy, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, as well as up on Capitol Hill. Eric, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Sorry, it's always great to be with you. Uh, thanks uh, very much. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report in Northrop Grumman, supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our coverage of command and control. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, great to uh, see you, Eric. Uh, at Farnborough. It was a pleasure, live and in person. Uh, and uh, there's a lot to discuss uh, about what's going on in, in D.C., obviously with uh, appropriations, the NDAA, uh, CHIPS Plus, and, and now the giant uh, climate, healthcare, and, and tax legislation, and, and many more things. But the show also was an opportunity for you to meet with your international uh, colleagues, uh, whether from ADS or the European uh, Association or the, or the Japanese. Talk to us about some of the major takeaways from some of the conversations you had with your fellow associations, because actually the challenges facing the industry are, are, are global in a sense. Uh, what, were, what were some of the key takeaways and the things that you guys talked about in terms of uh, agenda, you know, whether it was on sustainability, uh, you know, supply chains or anything else? Well, first, it was a little bit like starting on third base, just being in person uh, for the first major air show in three years um, was success uh, at, at, the, at the jump. I, everyone, there was so much energy and enthusiasm, uh, even in the extreme heat. You know, we were there when the UK set its all time uh, heat record. But I think people were just really glad to be back together in person. It just is not the same doing these things virtually or not doing them at all. So the, the energy was great. And there were a lot of issues to discuss. Um, not just uh, with international colleagues, but within the United States industry. And, and there are a lot of government industry meetings that take place at these air shows because um, everyone is together for an extended period of time and focused on the same set of issues. So a lot of great conversations. But I think with the, with the international uh, colleagues, there was a lot of discussion about China, Russia, Ukraine, uh, which is really focusing uh, West on, on defense and national security and strengthening those partnerships. So that really was uh, underpinning most of the conversations that took place with, with my international colleagues. You know, we have, a, we have an international association of AIAs and Russia used to be a member and they're not sanctioned, their, their CEO isn't sanctioned, but we just couldn't work with them anymore based on other sanctions that are in place, sharing of technical data in, in particular. So trying to figure out how this impacts us internationally and all the cooperation that we have had internationally, uh, particularly on the non-defense side, has been a, a major topic of conversation. You know, sustainability was a big growth. The Aerospace Global Forum uh, took place as well, right? I mean, sustainability was an important part of this. The Royal Air Force announced a sustainability agenda where uh, it pulled together, um, I think, some more than three dozen like-minded air forces to sort of think through the implications of this stuff. 
you know, what, what is the consensus that's emerging, right? I mean, obviously the climate bill makes uh, some of these sustainability targets maybe a little bit easier. Uh, the Paris goal is a little bit easier to achieve. Where did you guys fall on the whole sustainability agenda, which folks know they have to do, but also appreciate that, you know, it, it will be imposing costs uh, and changes in a way if we're going to try to get to this net zero future that everybody uh, would like to achieve. Yeah, there's obviously broad consensus and support for uh, focusing on sustainability. Uh, the, the, the member companies of AIA and the other associations internationally have done a lot of work on this. There's, there's amazing technological advancements uh, taking place in the sustainability realm. And what's interesting to me about it is um, there are different approaches being followed right now, which is great. I think the more solution sets that are being worked out there, the more likely is we're going to come up with uh, with the best ideas and to, to achieve our sustainability goals. So it was um, one of the major focus areas and topics of conversation, uh, what all the companies are doing, not just commercial aviation, but on the defense side too, uh, in part because, of course, engineers like coming up with new ideas. So this is a challenge that, that these companies are jumping into pretty um, forcefully and excitedly, but also the market's very clear. There's a strong demand um, from government partners, from airlines, from the flying public, uh, really across the board. Uh, to, to meet these sustainability goals. So everyone is, is focused on and aligned on the same set of goals. And there's a lot of excitement around it because there are a lot of new developments to talk about. Um, let me uh, take you to the question. You know, you said not only are you having those international conversations, uh, Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the United States Air Force, uh, was uh, leading the U.S. delegation as the senior most person uh, attending from the U.S. side. Andrew Hunter, his acquisition executive, was there, but also leaders from across the U.S. government, uh, as well as a congressional delegation were there. Um, what were some of the top issues uh, that, um, you know, U.S. industrialists and U.S. officials, right? I mean, what were the nature of the conversations that you guys were having, uh, you know, that go beyond, for example, Russia, China, and, and, and sort of supply chains? Well, I think, um, well, we haven't really touched on supply chains. That was certainly a large part of the conversation. Inflation, workforce issues, um, regulatory issues, you know, the certification of, of new technologies often is the long pole in the tent uh, in terms of introducing those technologies. Uh, so, and then foreign military sales and the process around foreign military sales, I think probably were the preponderance of what was discussed. There was a, you know, we, we had record attendance from our membership at this air show and a very robust uh, government delegation was there. Key people from all of the departments in government, agencies in government um, that interact with industry. So there were good, fruitful conversations uh, on those topics. I, I want to uh, come uh, to the United States and uh, the budget outlook, but maybe start with uh, before we get there on inflation, on supply chains and on, on, on workforce. Um, we've heard from the chief executives now talking for several quarters in a row about the inflation impact, supply chains obviously uh, being strained. Uh, and you and I have been, and you've been talking about workforce for uh, a long time and a more serious issue and a more lasting issue. Uh, and we'll get to the rocketry competition uh, in a minute because I know that's one of the highlights of, the, of, of, of every major air show for you. Where are we on inflation? Where are we on supply chains? And where are we on workforce in sort of a conjoined series of issues? And if you want to take them one at a time, um, what AIA and the membership are doing and what you're doing with the government in order uh, to help address some of these challenges, right? I mean, as my uh, comptroller, Mike McCord has said, it's not as big of an issue 
necessarily for the Pentagon in terms of outlays because these contracts are very long-term contracts. On the other hand, costs are also going up for industry, uh, even if it can't necessarily pass some of those costs on and their suppliers are struggling with it. Let's let's go through each one of these issues and how you guys are, are working with your membership and working with government to try to address. Sure. They do all touch on each other and overlap in many ways, um, but are distinct issues. So take inflation first. I've heard Mike McCord talk about its impact on the Pentagon directly and the Pentagon's budget. Um, and th they may have some mitigating factors in place like long lead contracts, but inflation is real and it is hitting in the defense industrial base now at certain places. And so the Pentagon might not be feeling it right away, but it's definitely having an impact on the industrial base. And, and, and it behooves all of us uh, to think about the defense industrial base in this country as a, as a national asset and to make sure that we're investing in it and protecting it. And so, you know, there aren't a lot of people uh, in industry or in government who've had to, to deal and tackle with inflation like we are right now. And uh, we've got to sort of dust off some old tools and think creatively to make sure that we're not making short term decisions that have long term impacts and the risk of further injury to the defense industrial base on top of you know the covid impact workforce issues which have which have existed since before i was in this job and will exist long after i'm gone from this job um, we run the risk of pushing some companies out of the defense industrial base because someplace in there someone is dealing with inflation um, right now and it's causing them uh, problems that may result in them deciding it's just too much of a barrier to continue working in the defense side of the business. On supply chain, um, this is an issue we've been talking about since the start of COVID. And we've said that, you know, many, some of the perturbations from COVID were going to take a while to work through the system. And we're seeing that with the supply chain. And it's different for for every com company. Sometimes it's logistics, sometimes it's workforce, sometimes it's inflation, sometimes it's raw materials, sometimes it's finished materials. Certainly COVID exacerbated it. Um, the focus now on onshoring, reshoring, buying American, and then everything that's happened with Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created perturbations. This is a, you know, aerospace is a global market, which means it's also a global supply chain. And so companies are having to figure out how to work around those issues. And in some cases, um, that comes with added time to delivery on contracts. And, and about workforce, Eric, because that's a, an issue that you've been talking about uh, pretty much the entire time that you've been on the job, the importance of workforce issues and why we've got to track them and, and why they're actually the hardest ones, right? You can surge production with enough money. You can't surge enough people when you need them, uh, you know, given this is a highly technical field and it takes time to prepare people for these jobs. It's clear when I took this job that for the CEO's on our executive committee, this was the number one strategic issue workforce. It has always been a focus because um, these are technical jobs, even if they're not, you know, advanced engineering positions. The the workforce we have in our factories, our plants, uh, installations are highly skilled and take a lot of training. And some in particular can take years of training and apprenticeships. And so it's always been a problem, but it's now particularly acute coming out of COVID uh, where, where everybody lost some workforce um, as, as the economy took a hit. 
And trying to get that workforce back or expand that workforce is in many ways the limiting factor for us um, surging back uh, economically uh, to meet the demand that's now being created. We have, um, you know, it, it, you know, again, it's 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 intertwined with the inflation issue we're facing uh, and other supply chain issues. But in many cases, workforce is what's slowing down industry's ability uh, to surge back and meet the demand as we come out of COVID. And this is not just an aerospace industry issue. Um, it's an in, it's certainly an issue across all manufacturing segments. And it's not something that we can solve just thinking about it as, as an industry or manufacturing issue. This is really an all of America issue um, that starts in our educational system system and providing um, good, uh, attractive paths for STEM uh, as kids um, in all levels of school, but also makes clear uh, that, you know, we can create some bridges like apprenticeships for when people leave school for whatever type of job at any different level that it is uh, from those highly skilled technical work workers uh, to the engineers. When, when COVID hit, there were kind of two things we focused on very quickly. One was liquidity. Um, in a crisis, companies need access to capital. And we were working at that at all levels on the defense side, the non-defense side. We benefited from the fact that, that on the defense side, the customer was still buying and the, the supply chain is shared. There are, most companies in the supply chain are doing defense and non-defense work, not necessarily exclusively either side. But the other was workforce, um, particularly on the the non-defense side, the commercial aviation side, um, that was just a hit. I mean, people weren't flying, the customer, the airlines weren't flying, uh, and so they weren't buying either. And you look at your workforce, there's a segment of it that you are keeping working. There's a segment that you probably aren't going to have back um, because of how slow uh, travel ramps back up and manufacturing ramp back up. But then you've got this segment in the middle that is going to be kind of idle uh, as we're looking at COVID. We didn't know how long it was going to be, but you want to have whole and ready to ramp up very quickly. And one of the things we advocated for, uh, Congress passed, was a lot of support, was the American Manufacturing Jobs Program, which provided, which, which made it a, a shared expense, um, government and industry, uh, to keep that workforce alive, even though it wasn't working, to keep it intact. So it would be ready to help bring the economy back uh, as we came out of COVID. What the government got out of that was, you know, a surge protector uh, for when we were going to want to start the, when the economy was going to start up again. But it also kept people off of unemployment rosters. It kept them with their health plans during a pandemic. Uh, so there was benefit to government and industry to think of this as a partnership. And that helped us keep a workforce um, that would be very hard to rebuild if it went away during COVID. We're right now in the NDAA uh, cycle. Uh, obviously, we have CHIPS Plus that was passed, which was an important piece of legislation. And on top of that, we have the climate um, um, uh, tax and, and healthcare package uh, that went through. Let's start with the NDAA and appropriations, uh, Eric, because it looks like we're about normalizing on $60 billion uh, in additional money, which will be very welcome by the department uh, above the Biden administration's historic request. Let's talk a little bit about some legislative specifics in that that actually help uh, address some of these issues, right? I mean, obviously, uh, the broader climate uh, healthcare and tax measure is seen as the, you know, is billed by Democrats as the inflation reduction. Um, you know, obviously, there's some good political messaging on that. I'm not going to ask you to discuss that. But, you know, what's in this the NDA and appropriations that specifically get to the heart of some of these issues? First, I would say that we have another year of broad bipartisan support for um, investing in defense, which which is important. It sends a strong message 
to our allies, to our adversaries, uh, and a clear signal to the industrial base, um, which is something that I, the importance of which I didn't realize fully when I was in government that I see now on the industry side, that they need, they need to react to a clear demand signal from their customer, from the government. So that, that bipartisan support provides not just clarity, but consistency that allows the industrial base then to invest in its capital expenses, build its workforce, shape its workforce uh, in order to deliver on, on what the, cover, the customer, the government is, is asking. One of the issues, of course, is we've got to figure out how to tackle inflation um, because that's going to eat into some of the buying power. And it's important that Congress remembers uh, that things are getting more expensive now. They, they are talking about part of why they've put more money into the budget beyond the president's request is because of inflation. But it's important they don't then direct that money be used to buy additional things that, instead of just um, making sure that they're covering the additional costs of inflation and how it impacts the industrial base. One, one more thing about, sure. okay. the, about the NDAA um, and defense spending. Uh, you know, it looks like we're headed into another year with a continuing resolution. And I know we were beating a dead horse here, but it is a tremendously disruptive way to budget. It makes it very hard for industry to respond. It makes it very hard for the Pentagon to plan. And it just compounds the inflation issue. If we, if we put off the start of a fiscal year because of the continuing resolution, uh, we're just letting inflation compound. The, one of the best ways to get at inflation is to start buying things as early as you can. And so it's great that we have this broad bipartisan support for investment in our nation's security, but we need to get back to some regular order in terms of the budget calendar. And obviously you're somebody who uh, lived the dream the entire time uh, you served in the Obama administration in various capacities dealing with uh, the Budget Control Act and its aftermath. Uh, uh, ultimately. You stop planning for things in the first quarter. I'm, I'm chair of the Air Force Academy Board of Visitors, and we were, we were on the phone last week figuring out our meeting schedule. And I said, why don't we do it in October? And they said, we never, we don't have money in October um, because we just assume there's going to be a continuing resolution. So it, it distorts after all these years, how government plans its year. Uh, they just are, you know, they just write off the first quarter. And sometimes we go well into the second quarter, if not beyond. Chips Plus, uh, obviously a historic piece of legislation uh, that started in the $50 billion range and then went over $200 billion uh, right to uh, improve the uh, America's capacity to, uh, to sharpen America's microelectronic game. It also became a broader uh, piece of investment uh, in workforce, in people, in engineering uh, and STEM skills, something which is uh, near and dear to your heart. What does Chips Plus ultimately mean over the long span uh, to this industry and why do you think it's going to be a needle mover? Well, this had become, um, like for many industries, for aerospace, uh, microelectronics had become part of the, um, uh, an acute part of the supply chain issue that we were discussing earlier. So this is for us a very positive step in trying to plug this hole for, uh, for this critical part of the supply chain and bringing something back to the United States, investing in the United States. You know, when we think about 
um, reshoring, onshoring, buy American and so forth. I think it's important to remember we're a net exporting industry and buying American can make it hard to sell American. And, th and those, those exports are American jobs as well. And so when we think about what we want to bring back to the United States, I think we have to be um, very thoughtful and intentional about that. And, and national security should play, I think, a priority and critical aspect of, of that planning. So this is something in our supply chain that we need to guarantee we have access to. So I think for, for both for our nation's security and for our economic security, this, this legislation was important and we were strong supporters of it. What are the uh, implications of the climate, healthcare, and tax bill? I mean, I know that it's uh, still early, right? I mean, it's developed very, very quickly. Uh, so I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot that the, there may not have been as much uh, strategic planning uh, on, on this uh, from your guys' end. But as you look at this uh, now, sort of 24, 48 hours after the, the measure has been adopted and the House is going to be voting on it this week, what do you think the impact is going to be on the aerospace and, and, and your, your aerospace and defense members? So uh, there was a key element in that legislation for our industry, and that's a blender's tax credit. Um, that is an important uh, component of us being able to achieve our sustainability goals, net zero by 2050. Uh, you know, that's dependent on new technology, um, but also on sustainable aviation fuel. And so this tax credit will help drive uh, production to meet the market needs so we can meet that 2050 net zero emissions goal. You mentioned uh, tax credit. Um, there's also an R&D tax amortization clause, right, that is uh, being considered by Congress. Talk a little bit about that and why that's important. So we, um, it used to be that you invested a dollar uh, in R&D and you were able to amortize it, take that credit in that tax year. Um, what we're facing now, uh, starting this year, is that it's amortized over five years, and we're afraid that that will disincentivize, um, because you're amortizing it over such a long period of time, some of the private sector research and development investments. Um, it's sort of, you know, over time, net zero for the government, they, the, the tax credit comes in five years, uh, or what we're advocating for is keeping it uh, wholly in one year. Um, but it does make a difference to industry, a one-year timeline versus a five-year timeline. And, and while we're doing this, extending the amortization to five years versus one year, China's actually doubling down. They're not just giving giving you your investment in that tax year, they're doubling it. They're giving you a 200% credit for your investment in the tax year. And so if we want to think about um, marshalling all of our resources to include what's in the private sector um, uh, to, to get at this looming China problem, uh, this just seems like a short-sighted move. So we've been advocating for that. I think there's a lot of broad bipartisan support for it. It just has been hard to find a legislative vehicle that, that they can get over the line um, that we can get this on. You know, there's, there, there's not, um, there hasn't been a lot moving through Congress, uh, certainly not many vehicles. And so we've been, we've just been trying to find the right place to, to get this done, hopefully by the end of the year. Are you hopeful that you will? I'm always hopeful. Um, so I say take that with a grain of salt. Like I said, I think we, we have done the, the work in uh, explaining this to the Hill, both chambers, both parties, there's a lot of support for this and understanding how um, it is important to incentivize the private sector to invest in research and development. It's not just government investment in research and development. The, the majority of it takes place in the private sector, and we want to make sure that the incentives remain strong. Again, it's just trying to get it into a vehicle that gets passed um, before Congress breaks for the election. You mentioned something uh, in, in terms of 
um, earlier on China and, and on, on Russia, and you raised it again in terms of sort of the strategic Chinese view of competition. Um, obviously, tensions uh, have exploded in the wake of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's uh, historic visit uh, to Taipei. Uh, on the other hand, the Chinese have a strong reaction, no matter what it is we do. So the administration, I think, is well within its rights to say this is a manufactured crisis. If it wasn't this, it would have been something else uh, that the Chinese uh, would have would have responded to. The, the challenge is, as you said earlier in the conversation, Eric, uh, Russia, for example, was a key supplier, whether for titanium or for finished machine uh, aerospace uh, components. Uh, it was it was also a, a market for advanced American technology uh, that's been changing, and indeed. China is one of the most, or has been, has you know, a very, very important market, a very important market for Boeing commercial aircraft, for example. How is it that we have? What's the strategic way to negotiate this? Because both have come to a head, right? I mean, I think the last time you and I spoke was in April uh, on the program. Um, you know, how how do we negotiate this? And, and what's the thinking on the part of the membership? Because right, one part of Boeing, for example, wants to see more defense sales and the other part of Boeing wants to see more commercial sales, right? I mean, I'm not gonna ask you to talk about any uh, particular uh, company, but how is it that we negotiate this? Um, because it has implications on rare earths, it has on titanium uh, and on finished products as well. And, and it looks like we are in a completely different ball game that is, that is changing by the day. Vago, this is clearly a, a complicated and complex problem because China is an, you know, an adversary, a competitor. They're a partner on a number of things. They are a market, um, both for our exports. They're also an important part of our supply chain. And I think that's why you're seeing, especially as we look at what happened with Russia and Ukraine, we're trying to figure out, okay, where are we dependent on China in ways that we need to um, mitigate uh, or replace? And so that's been a lot of effort uh, among our members this year in particular, and certainly in our conversations with government, both with the Hill and with the administration, the Pentagon in particular, to have as much clarity about our supply chain as possible. So we're not dependent on those and at risk should something happen. Russia. The invasion of Ukraine created all sorts of problems, but a lot of companies had been looking for ways to mitigate going back to Crimea. So this has been a you know slowly unfolding problem, and people have been focused on the same issue in China for a number of years now. But I think all these things that are happening, both in Ukraine and in China writ large, are focusing people's attention on trying to make sure we come up with strategies to be less reliant for critical components um, in the supply chain from from that country, from those countries. And, and any sense what time frame uh, folks are talking about in um, in doing? You know, is this is this a five year endeavor, three year endeavor, one year endeavor, ten year endeavor? I think it's all of the above. Uh, um, right. Some things you can do quickly. Some things take more time. Like for example, the chips bill that we were talking about. It'll take a while um, to create that infrastructure uh, to, to meet that supply, to meet that demand. Um, so some things take longer to do just because of the, the capital investments, the infrastructure investments, the workforce uh, investments, other things can be done more quickly. New team, uh, has taken in the administration has taken a little bit longer, uh, to get in the saddle, but now Heidi Shu is on the job, uh, at RE, obviously at ANS acquisition and sustainment. You have, uh, Dr. Bill LaPlante, uh, and, 
Andrew Hunter and a number of other qualified folks uh, in there. Uh, I know that you know all the players. Indeed, you you served with all of them at one point uh, or or another. Uh, the last administration was talking about the importance of a good relationship with industry. I think this uh, administration is giving a similar message. What are the priority issues you're working with them directly um, on behalf of your membership? So I think it's many of the same issues of the previous administration. We're 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 lucky. Um, we do. There is a very strong team in place. It did take a while to get there, uh, as you pointed out. Um, uh, but you know, it builds on what was a great relationship with the previous administration as well, and that is just open dialogue. This this is a partnership. Um, between you know government and industry to, to deliver what the Pentagon needs or our country's needs for national security. And the more dialogue, interaction, collaboration that takes place, the stronger that partnership is. And so that dialogue has continued um, from the previous team to this team, even during the time um, that it took to get people into the confirmed positions. So that's been great. Uh, Bill LaPlante, Heidi Shu, um, the service acquisition executives uh, have all been um, kind of uh, uh, very open door policy to industry to discuss issues that are longstanding issues, the same issues that we talked about earlier in this conversation, inflation, workforce, supply chain. Uh, and then with all the, the um, demand signal that's been created because of Russia's invasion of, of, of Ukraine, and by demand signal, I mean the Europeans, you know, the Eastern Europeans have been providing a lot of supplies to Ukraine that go back to the Soviet Union stays. Uh, the Western Europeans are, are doing the same and I think probably trying to, to modernize. So uh, there's a lot of demand on industry and we are talking to the Pentagon about how they make that demand signal clear to industry. That really is letting contracts. That's the, the, the clearest, crispest, fastest, most effective way to, to communicate with industry is to, to write a contract. And so that's one of the issues we've been talking to them about. You know, what do you need to support uh, Ukraine? What do we need uh, for our future national security needs? And let's get some things out on contract. So we talked earlier about the defense budget, which is great, this broad bipartisan support for this investment. But we need to have some clarity uh, on, on how they're going to spend that money. Um, a number of senior executives have made it abundantly clear that they're willing, to, for example, to surge uh, production. Uh, we've heard that from Lockheed Martin's Jim Takelet, for example, right? And the president visited the Javelin factory on that. Do you get a sense that the administration is ready to sort of commit, make the investment? Because industry looks like it's poised to deliver if it can get some sign from the government that, hey, look, if you want a lot of javelins, just tell me you want a lot of javelins. Just don't shift gears on me on javelins or jasms or, or, or anything else, right? I'm not trying to make this company specific at all, uh, because I know the folks at Raytheon, you know, want similar sort of commitments. Do you get a sense that there is going to be this kind of surge in investment in refilling, um, uh, you know, weapons stocks, for example, that are depleted? Because again, it, as, as you said, right, this stuff is is long term. It's, it's not... Um, flip of a switch, but ultimately it does require right commitment on the part of the government in order to do it. Yeah, I do get the sense that 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 government, that the Pentagon wants to do that. They haven't yet. That's an enormously complex problem that they're facing and figuring out what long-term investments to make. Uh, and we don't always do a good job in investing in the industrial base as an asset and in thinking about um, uh, certain long-term needs and surge capabilities. We often plan uh, for a war that 
that in planning purposes is going to be quick and it doesn't usually happen that way. So they're having to think through some long-term investments. Um, but the sooner they put things in writing and contracts, the faster they'll get industry um, incentivized and aligned with what their long-term goals are. Now, I, you know, it's certainly industry, the companies in aerospace and defense have, have sent the signal that they're willing to, to make some bets, um, but it's not the same as getting uh, the Pentagon to start uh, issuing contracts. Obama administration looked at arms exports as an important part of uh, the health of the industrial base, especially when the United States was being racked with uh, the aftermath of the Budget Control Act. Uh, and so the United States did address uh, a lot of ally and partner needs. Uh, the Trump administration set records in terms of uh, arms uh, exports. And there is a concern some have that this administration has really dialed back even the pace of the support for some allies and partners, even though aid has surged, uh, we should be clear, uh, uh, in the wake of the Ukraine uh, conflict. Um, is that a challenge and an issue that your membership is raising? And if so, how are you guys addressing that with the administration, right as the administration tries to balance responsibility with actually advancing the national's interests, industrial, uh, as well as from a security standpoint, to improve the capability of our allies and partners? It's government's job to set foreign policy, um, and and then we want to align with that foreign policy. And if it's in the interest of our nation's security and our foreign policy, we want to be able to do those things quickly and transparently. Um, part of slowing this down is sending confusing messages to industry, but also to our allies and partners that are looking that, that want American technology, American hardware. They have other options they can turn to. Um, I think. You know, one indicator of, of how superior our platforms are is how long these other countries are willing to stick with this process that can be confusing and slow. And so that's usually our focus when we're talking with the State Department or the Defense Department or the Commerce Department, um, that we need a process in place that gets us to the right answer. Uh, not changing no's to yeses or getting everything to yes, but getting to the right answer quickly so we're not um, whipsawing industry, and perhaps even more importantly, our adversaries and partners, especially Last. now with what we're seeing in Europe um, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There, you know, we've got NATO expanding, uh, Europe now having a renewed focus on its national security and its investments in national security. Uh, so we don't, we don't want to drag this out in a way that causes problems with our alliances. You know, it's interesting, I don't think people think about this. Hardware lasts longer than people do really in these relationships. It's a, it's a binding element for alliances and partnerships over a long period of time. And we have a, a, you know, a moment in history here because of this invasion of Ukraine uh, to I think really um, bind that partnership, that alliance more closely. And indeed, we're seeing a number of nations, for example, opt for the F-35 that people didn't think would opt for the F-35, thereby actually cementing a five-decade relationship with the United States and one that will um, carry uh, well, well beyond. Very last question, less than 30 seconds. Rocketry competition, again, one of the highlights for you and inspiration for a new uh, generation to get attracted to the business. Talk to us about the rocketry competition and what made this year special. Well, it's, it's, it's really my favorite part of the job, I think. This was the 20th anniversary of the contest. Uh, and, you know, the first time in three years where we were able to do it in person. We had over 5,000 students this year. There have been 85,000 over the lifespan of this, uh, of this contest. Uh, the, the American 
team, the national champion out of Bellevue, Washington, placed second in the international competition uh, at Farnborough. That was exciting. Uh, just behind a, a, an all-girls school uh, from Japan, an all-girls team. And we're expanding that, trying to get more um, uh, a broader uh, participation in that con con contest. We have Title I program grants. Uh, we have partnerships with the National Society of Black Engineers, Women in Aerospace, and a new one with the Girl Scouts who are offering a badge for the Rocketry Challenge. Uh, so we have a lot of ideas to expand on what is already a large and very exciting contest to get kids excited about STEM uh, writ large, but aerospace in particular. Eric, thanks so very much. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago.